uh, this passage, uh, in this passage, we find Paul uh, at his second port of call on a five-city tour uh, of Europe. If you remember from last week, for those of you who were here, that the Apostle Paul uh, was seeking at first to go into Asia, but the door was blocked in two of those directions. The third direction was blocked off because it was sea. So the Lord was clearly calling him by the Holy Spirit through this vision of a man of Macedonia into Europe. And between chapter 15 and verse 36 through to midway through chapter 18, we have Paul's missionary journey, second missionary journey. He's essentially on this five-city tour. And it's really worth pausing, exploring, reading, looking hard at what Paul does you find that it's a little bit repetitive. And you've got to ask the question, why does Luke repeat himself? Why does he repeat what Paul does in these different cities that he visits? Well, I reckon it's to help us to see how people become disciples. We ask the question, how do people become followers of Jesus? Well, I think the tour of these five cities helps us to see. As we explore passages like this, we get a glimpse of Paul's missionary methodology. This is how we make disciples. And this is how, when we make disciples, we plant churches. So let's look at it together to give you four hooks tonight, four points. Um, Here's the methodology. One, engage with people. Two, engage people's minds. Three, open God's word. And four, proclaim God's salvation. If you didn't catch that, that's okay. The whole sermon's about this. Number one, engage with people. Uh, This is uh, what we find in verses 1 to 3 and in verse 10 of this uh, passage in Acts 17. Paul, you see, is always trying to find ways to be a part of people's lives. He's very intentional about it. It's what Paul does both at the macro level and the micro level. In verse 1, we read that uh, Paul and his, his, his friends passed through two smaller cities. And if Paul stops in these towns... He's checking in late to a holiday inn, and he's checking out in the morning with his rucksack packed, okay? It's a short stopover, unlike the five-city stopover that he has in this section of the book of Acts. For again and again in this section, we see Paul stop over for longer periods in bigger and more strategic cities like Thessalonica. Thessalonica was home to around 300,000 people. It was located on what was called the Ignatian Highway, which was really the main motorway, if you like, between Rome and Byzantium, between east and west. And it was, it was a crossroads, really. There were so many people from so many different places passed through this city. And it had a huge trading center. And you can understand why then Paul might prioritize this place. It wasn't that people in smaller towns didn't need saving. That, it's obvious that they, they did. Paul, of course, just hoped to preach the gospel to as many people as possible so that he could plant as many churches as possible in as many strategic locations as possible. It's, I think it's more that Paul just knew that he could multiply his ministry of disciple-making by pre, uh, reaching a place like Thessalonica. Now you can almost hear Paul talking with his friends as they walk along the way, looking up from his lonely planet guide to Europe 
and saying, guys, look at these places. You know, imagine God saved soul, souls in cities like these. Or remember what he did in Antioch. Oh, remember how the church was planted there, how they grew in number and how they grew in depth and in their maturity. They really came to know God and then they demonstrated that. They were helping the brothers and sisters in all different parts of the, the world where the gospel had already taken root. But then they decided, actually, we are in a resourceful place. We have quite an opportunity to reach other people. It might just be that we're going to be a sending base. And maybe Paul's walking along with his friends and thinking, imagine that happens again. Imagine God would be pleased to be gracious enough again to do it in places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and Corinth. Imagine we could plant a church, planting church, in every one of those cities. That would be amazing. Well, if that was his dream, his dream came true. I mean, a church was planted in each of these cities. Even if you just take Thessalonica, two books in the New Testament are written to that church that was born there in Acts 17. And this little local church in Thessalonica was having an impact that transcended local, regional, and national borders. It was phenomenal. In, Acts, uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8, we read earlier that the Lord's message rang out from you, these, this church, not only in Macedonia in the north and Achaia in the south, your faith in God has become known everywhere. So, it might seem like strategizing isn't such a bad idea after all. How do we feel when we talk about strategic planning? Even when it comes to the area of global mission. You know, if we look at places and areas in this world that are yet unreached, some of us sometimes feel a little bit uncomfortable about looking to identify key places, like where are the Thessalonicans of the unreached people groups in our world. But even about local mission, we can think the same. But this, this passage seems to encourage us, really, to be strategic in our thinking. Not just globally, but locally. Because what we see in terms of local mission, this passage suggests that Paul's careful planning, careful planning applies not only at the macro level of where shall I go, but also at the micro level of what shall I do when I get there. Because we see in verse 2, look with me, as was his custom. In other words, his repeated pattern. Paul went into the synagogue and there was, see, there was method to Paul's missionary efforts. He intentionally sought ways to connect with people. He actually went and found people that he could maybe have a conversation with because he maybe had a natural affiliation with them to begin with, of course, given Paul's background in, in Judaism and Phariseeism. He knew all about it. He went and met with those who were kind of religious-y, as he used to be, and found a platform, or at least a starting point, for sharing the gospel in cities. Didn't just stay with Within the Jewish community or in the synagogues, it's spread out, as we know. But there's methodology to it. He engaged with people. He thought about where he should go, and he thought he, about what he should do when he gets there. And I wonder if we think along those lines too. What about us? Are we strategic when it comes to local and global mission? Do you ever stop to think about where the Lord has placed you? Where you live right now? Uh, what's going on around you? Where are the opportunities to, to meet with people who don't know Jesus? Have we ever thought about these questions and asked these questions? Maybe there's a local fitness class, there's a book group, a football team, 
you know, the Rugby World Cup is on? Are you inviting folks around to your house to watch that with you? There are many different ways that we can engage with people. Maybe you'd benefit from revisiting the personal discipleship plan that we drew up at the start of our ACT series. There are copies of this in the stairwells if you're interested. It's based around our, our hope to see disciples love, grow, serve, and go. And under the go section in particular, it asks you to, um, it says, how will I share the gospel? Well, by praying for people who don't know Jesus and spending time with people who don't know Jesus and it asks you a few questions in there to help you think through, well, what can I do? If I don't really know anyone who doesn't know Jesus, what can I do to engage with people in a helpful way? And that's the first thing that we see Paul doing in this passage. It's one of the things that we see him doing again and again and again in the book of Acts. What about the second thing? Not only do we engage with people, when we actually engage with people, we want to engage their minds And that's what the Apostle Paul does. Look with me at verse 2. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them. Now, pause there. Paul reasoned with them. That tells us that he actually engaged their minds. Uh, He encouraged them to think. The word reasoned in Greek means to argue thoroughly. And it suggests that there's dialogue going on. Sure, he's preaching and proclaiming, as it says a couple of verses down. But there's opportunity to talk, opportunity for people to ask. This is Q&A with the Apostle Paul. Now, so many people in our city would think that it takes intellectual suicide to become a Christian. That you've got to leave your brain behind to follow Jesus. That you've got to dispense with logic And that there's no way that you can know that any of this Bible stuff is true. Therefore, people say that faith in God is unreasonable. Unreasonable. That's why people often refer to faith as a blind faith or a leap in the dark. Well, sadly, Christians can do little to dispel that view, especially when we don't really have an answer to to a person who's maybe asking us in Q&A ourselves some questions. And we just say, oh, well, you, you just have to believe. Well, is that right? Maybe it's better to say, you just have to look. You just have to examine. You just have to use your mind and use your brain to think. Let me speak personally here. I certainly didn't jump. I I didn't become a Christian until I was 19. Didn't grow up in a Christian home at all. But I didn't just jump into Christianity because I ran out of questions. I took six months to get to a point of denying it, to a point of believing it. And there's no way I would have given up the life that I used to live if I wasn't utterly convinced that there were trustworthy things to base my life decisions on. And I would discourage you from doing anything different. Because I came to see that faith doesn't contradict reason. Rather, faith is really the conclusion of reason careful examination, pondering the scriptures. That's actually what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not endorse blind leaps of faith in the dark. It speaks of a knowledge of God gained through wisdom, through knowledge, through rational means. Instead of a leap of faith, it actually commends a well-informed step of faith. So don't let people think that they need to leave their mind at the door 
when you're talking to them about Christian things. No, engage with them on Christian things. Give people reason to think about Jesus. Do you ever find yourself doing this? Do you find yourself engaging people's minds with Christian truth? Do you, when you're talking with your friends, engage in a discussion with, with if you like, a Christian take on everyday subjects? Whether it's parenting, schooling, whether it's, I don't know, the rugby tackle that the, the guy just put in, you know, Burgess, for example, you know. Do you, do you contribute to conversations on, you know, on, on how you look and your view of yourself or your worldview or what's been going on with the migrant crisis? Do you offer a Christian view on everyday subjects and engage people's brains in that way? Or would you say it's your tendency to stay quiet? Maybe because you don't feel like you know what to say, or maybe because you worry what people will say in response. Paul's, Paul's example to us in these passages is really one of engagement, of speaking boldly, engaging people's minds, and dialoguing with people. It's, it's both giving an answer for the hope that we have, or it's challenging people with questions related to even their own beliefs. You know, it is funny that we often think that the onus is on Christians to provide a really good reason why they believe the things that they believe. But actually, the onus is as much on, well, the non-Christian to justify why they believe what they believe. This text encourages us to reason with people who don't know Jesus. And it might just encourage us as a church in our mission, in our evangelism, to remember that it doesn't take intellectual suicide to believe. Why not explain how you carefully explored the faith with people? I sometimes share my story with people when they ask about why I'm a Christian. And I would say, well, I used to think that Jesus was a fictional character. At one time, I thought he... Pro then I moved on to a case where I kind of thought, well, he probably did exist, but he certainly is not the all-guns-blazing hero that these authors of the Bible uh, made him out to be. But then I started to look at the evidence. And when I started looking, I actually found Roman and Jewish historians, in other words, non-Christian historians, documenting the life, the works, and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in ways that didn't contradict what the scriptures were claiming, but actually paired up with it, confirmed it. Well, that got me thinking. And I found that it was unreasonable for me then to say that he didn't exist. And that became another platform for me. I came to realize that the stories that I was reading in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not embellished or made up. All that was left for me to do was then to engage with the Bible for myself and figure out whether or not what Jesus said was true. And praise God it is. And I commend it to you. But we can start there, engaging with people's minds. We have every reason to be confident in the, the arguments, the ideas that we have. But beware that actually one of the things that we see when we share the gospel with people is if they reject it, it's really, really not often down to the fact that there's not enough evidence 
it's mostly down to the fact that they suppress the truth by their own wickedness, as Romans 1 says. They'd rather not change. They'd rather not face up to the implications of believing. So we are encouraged not only to engage with people and be intentional about it, but to engage people's minds. and, And with our words, engagement and conversation, encourage people to think about the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we do that? Well, he shows us. Paul shows us what to do in this passage. Use the Bible. Number three, open God's word. We engage people's minds by opening up God's word and showing them what it says. In verses 2 and 3, we read, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving. Now, pause there. The Greek word for explaining means to expound, to open thoroughly, to open with might. Yes, that's what we like. And the Greek word for proving is a word that means to place alongside. Now, what that tells us is that Paul is part of his methodology of sharing the gospel with people, of making disciples, of bringing people to a point where they can actually hear and understand who Jesus is. He opens up God's word, the scriptures, and he takes his message of the gospel, of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, his story that he is the king, and he puts it alongside the scriptures to say, see, he's the one. He's the one. This is the guy. He's God's promised king. And that's what we're supposed to do. We can use the Bible to show people the truth. Now, some of us recoil even at that thought. We had uh, Richard Borgen on here a while back who introduced to us this wonderful resource called The Word One-to-One. It's a helpful book, a set of booklets that help us as Christians walk through the book of John, the gospel of John, a little bit at a time with a non-Christian to help them understand it. But some of us recoil at that thought. Open a Bible with people, then they really will think I'm daft or weird. I mean, who reads the Bible? They don't read the Bible. Now, I mentioned earlier that I often start talking to people when I'm sharing my faith about the historicity of Jesus, the reality of the fact that he lived and walked this earth undeniably 2,000 years ago. The second thing I often talk about is the historical reliability of the Bible. For even in that, the evidence is so strong. We have every reason to be confident in opening up this book with those who don't believe it and let them see what it says for themselves. Because if anyone chooses to reject this, again, it will not be because they found it to be full of holes. It will be because they refuse to engage with it meaningfully. When I pastored a church in St. Andrews before I moved down here to Edinburgh, we were uh, called on at one point to help a family in need. And we provided some practical help for this family. And uh, one day I, I went to meet with the dad to see how things were going. And we talked about all the things we wanted to talk about. But then he wasn't a Christian, so I asked him if he had ever read the Bible. And he said, (laughs) the Bible? Well, they've proven that's a fake, haven't they? Put together by churchy people like you over a 400-year period. And I said, well, really? (laughs) And I said, that's interesting. I said, you've obviously thought about that a little bit. Where did you read about that? And he said, oh, I didn't read about it. I watched it on a documentary on Channel 5. 
So I said, okay, well, that's, that's really interesting. But do you know that I could actually take you to the John Ryland Museum in Manchester and show you a section of John's gospel that's encased there that has been scientifically proven to date back to at least 110 AD, probably a little bit before that. Ah, but that's just your opinion. You know, you like dessert, he said. I like cheese. We're just never going to agree on this thing. And I said, hang on a minute. Hang, hang on. Hang, whoa, whoa, whoa. I just said to you, I could take you to the John Ryland Museum and show you a section of John's gospel that dates back to, you know, at least 110 AD. And he just refused to engage me on it. And it wasn't because he disagreed. It was that he did not want to consider the evidence. And that's sad. It's heartbreaking when you open the Bible and seek to talk with people from God's word about what it says, and they have none of it. That man was so closed-minded. I mean, he would rather change the subject than give me an ear. He'd never even read the Bible, but felt so strongly on the subject. But that's irrational. That's blind faith right there. That's dispensing with logic. That is the most tragic leap in the dark the world has ever known. He's really like the mob in verses 5 to 9 of our text. They'd rather drive Paul and his companions away than give them an ear. They're worried about the social unrest that comes with Paul's message. Oh, there's another king, a greater king. It's called Jesus. Well, they're not happy at that, and they would sooner beat them and drag them before the magistrates and have them drive them out and then create a law. I think this is what he does, the, the, the city officials do with, with, um, with Paul and with his friend Jason in here. They say, they post bond. In other words, I'm going to make a law. Paul is not allowed to return. If he does, you're a goner. They'd rather throw you out than give you an ear. They'd rather start a riot and, than sit down with intellectual integrity and open the Bible. But thankfully, thankfully, not everyone reacts that way to an invitation to read the Bible. Let me tell you about my friend George. I worked alongside George before I went into ministry. He was a young lad, 24 at the time. And when, I, when he found out that I was a Christian and had not long become a Christian, he was asking lots and lots of questions. And I talked to him about, well, the, all the things that I had read. All the things that people had told me, what I received, I was just kind of passing on. And, and I would talk about the historicity of Jesus. And I would talk about the historical reliability of the Bible. And boy, was he like a Berean. He was like a Berean. He was so open-minded and with real integrity was willing to engage in the questions and engage in the arguments. He wasn't, you know, he was really reasoned in his thinking. He was opening up his mind thoroughly to try and understand it. You know, he wasn't just swallowing it all. He was asking great questions back. And when he disagreed, we worked it out. We went back to the Bible. We tried to understand exactly what it meant. And he didn't dismiss me as a lunatic when I opened the Bible to him either. He just thought, well, if you believe it, it makes perfect sense that you would want to open this up and show me where you get it from. And he received the message of the Bible with such eagerness that I'd speak to him one day 
And he, he was, I remember one day I met him as I was going for my lunch and he was just coming back from his lunch and he just said, oh, I just read the book of Romans. I was like, on your lunch break? He was like, yeah, moving on to Hebrews. It's exciting. He was devouring it. He was like a Berean with great eagerness opening it up, desperate to find out what it meant, asking all the hard questions because hard questions come. And one night I sat with him in the front seats at Central Baptist Church in Dundee. And having read the Bible for himself and considered the evidence, dialogued with believers, he bowed his head and made a well-reasoned step of faith to trust the Lord Jesus. And he did it before it was too late. Two years later, he died of a massive brain hemorrhage. And if you're here today, you're not a Christian do not think for a second, please, that you have until your 80-odd years to figure this out. You don't. Today is the day when you start to ask the questions and ask people like me or the, people, the person who brought you to church to think through what Christianity is all about in a well-reasoned way, with integrity, so that even if in six months' time you choose to reject it, you feel like you can do that in good conscience. The people of Thessalonica were persuaded like George was. And they joined the church. And the people in Berea were persuaded, having with eagerness examined it. And they joined the church. They partnered every other believer in gospel mission. And as we see from well, two of the books in the New Testament, they gathered together to form a local church where they sought to love God, grow together in Christ's likeness, serve Christ's church, and go and make more disciples. <coughs> These guys, like as the Bereans looked into it, they moved on. And I wonder, I wonder how we feel about opening God's word with people. I think there are three things that we can do in application even just to this point in order to open God's word and explain it thoroughly. You've got to trust it. If you wonder about the authority or the truthfulness of this book, well, that's where you should begin tonight. Uh, ask me afterwards. I would be glad to email you a bundle of links to articles which talk about the truthfulness of this book. Uh, secondly, in order to open God's word and explain it thoroughly, we need to read it and know it. There's no shortcut to this. Actually, you just need to read it and know it. And you need to make it a daily discipline to do so. And I think this is one of the, one of the things that's really convicted me. It's so easy, to, even as a preacher, to be reading your Bible with a view to what's coming next Sunday but actually reading the Bible for your own personal growth, that you grow in your love for God, and then so that you're equipped with the conversations that you have with non-Christians to share that word and show them what it means. There's no shortcut to it. And I think that's one of the things I've challenged myself with recently, that if the, the, the reading of the Bible, the discipline of it every day is dropped, What's well, bad, not just for, but for my soul, it's inconsiderate of the lost souls, the hundreds of thousands of lost souls around me. 
And thirdly, in order to open God's Word and explain it thoroughly, we need to invite people to read it. Maybe even give them a copy. If you're here tonight, you're not a Christian, that burgundy Bible, and it might be a wee bit tatty, but it's yours. It's our gift to you. I would love to buy you a brand new one. But if you want that one, it's yours. Feel free to take it. And we'd love to help you understand it. For those of you who are Christians, well, we, we need to ask people to read it with us. This is the next step, if you like, of asking people to helpfully engage with us in, in our Christian view of everyday subjects in life. Let me show you where I get that idea from of what love looks like in a marriage, of what parenting looks like, of, of what relationships and friendships should look like, etc. And engage with people. Invite them not to leave their brains at the doors, but to engage with the Bible critically and to ask as many questions as they possibly can. Now, don't think I'm naive for a second. I know that the Brians came from a, a religious background. and Some of the guys that, that Paul spoke to in Thessalonica had come from a religious age, Jewish background. That meant that they kind of had this working presupposition that what they were going to open up was God's words. And I know that's not how it is in Scotland today. That's right. The, the, the hot off the press Barner research that I mentioned last week states that 63% of Scots have never read the Bible or any part of it. 63%, nearly 3 million people in our country have never, ever read it. 69% say that there's never, an, never a time when they think they will be interested in reading it. That's probably because no Christian has ever helped them get to the point of being interested in it by entering their lives, that was the first thing, and engaging their minds in thoughtful questions as pre-steps to opening up God's Word with them. The interesting thing about that Barna study showed that 27% of people said that they might be interested in times of crisis or when they're looking for advice on certain things to consider what the Bible would say. So there is an opportunity for us still. Now, I wonder if you're ready to apply Paul's methodology in your life and to wonder what kind of changes need to be made to help that happen. We don't need to be tense at this. You don't need to be a Tim Keller or a John Lennox to do this. You don't have to be that clever or well-spoken or anything like that. You just have to be able to open a Bible and lay out the word for people with integrity. That's what the Apostle Paul said to do. In one of his letters to the Corinthian church, Paul shares his convictions on this. He says, we renounce secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Set forth the truth plainly. And then let's not forget what was read to us from 1 Thessalonians 1 either, that the gospel, when it came to the Thessalonians who believed, did not come to them simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. The one who gives us power to proclaim helps us. Therefore, we should, one, be a part of people's lives, two, engage people's minds and three, engage people's minds by opening up the Word of God. Why? So that we can, number four, proclaim God's amazing salvation. 
That's what Paul does. Look with me, verses 2 and 3 again. Paul went into the synagogue on three Sabbath days, reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. That's what it all comes down to. This is why we try to find meaningful ways to be a part of other people's lives. This is why we engage people's minds with thoughtful contributions with a Christian take on whatever is being discussed. This is why we open God's word and set it out plainly. It's so that we can talk about the cross of Christ and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. For there is no more vital subject to address, no greater subject to address in all the world than that. Why did Paul engage people's minds and open God's word to show them that Jesus suffered on the cross? Opening up those Old Testament scriptures, where would you go to show that? Maybe he did it to show them that he, Jesus, was the one God promised long ago, the one who would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Maybe he wanted to show them that Jesus was the one who took up their infirmities and carried their sorrows, even though they considered him stricken by God and smitten by him. Maybe it was to show them that he was pierced for their transgressions. He was crushed for their iniquities. It was to show them that the punishment that brought them peace when they believed was upon Jesus and by his wounds they're healed. And it was to show them like everyone else in the world and even everyone in this room that we were like sheep that had gone astray, each turning to his own way, but the Lord had laid on Jesus the iniquity of his own reasoned with them from the scriptures to proclaim that Jesus Christ had to suffer for them because they had sinned. He had to suffer for them for he was dying in their place to rescue them. And why did Paul engage people's minds and open God's word to show them that Jesus had to rise from the dead? Well, to show them that after the suffering of Jesus' soul, he would see the light of life and be satisfied, that death would not be the end. It was to show them that God would not let his son see corruption, nor let this holy one see decay. And that's what we must do too. We must get to that point of being able to talk to people about the cross and about the empty tomb. That is what we must do. Because if anyone is going to be made right with God, we must show them just that. We must show them that God accepted Jesus' suffering as a payment for sin, thus making forgiveness possible through faith in him and if you're here tonight you're not a Christian that is the best news you could ever hear and your response to that that you have sinned but God sent Jesus to die in your place to take away that sin and give you new life in his name is received by you when you trust in him you take him at his word and you believe it with all your heart and you're baptized to show that you believe it and you follow him all your days Confess your sin. Pray for forgiveness and receive the gift of his salvation. It's what Paul did. It's what we must do. For if, even if hell must be filled, as Spurgeon said, let no one go unwarned. If sinners will be damned, let them perish with our arms around their knees, pleading with them to stay. So let's, let's, let's summarize this, and maybe I can give you some homework. The four points that we've looked at tonight have encouraged us to engage with people, 
to engage people's minds to open God's word and proclaim God's salvation. Now, maybe working backwards, if you're in a position to share that message of salvation with someone, your homework then is to go for it. Pray for that opportunity and take that opportunity this week. If you're not in that position to share the message of salvation with someone, your homework this week might just be to work on opening the word of God with people. Or if you're not at that stage of opening the word of God with someone, your assignment this week, your homework is to engage your friends in discussion with a Christian take on every day's subjects. That's the hope this week. Or if you're not at the stage of engaging with people, even with a Christian take on every day's subjects, then maybe your homework this week is to go and meet people. Connect with people who don't know Jesus and begin there. And may God take and use our careful thought and intentionality in life to bring tons and tons of people to come to know him. Let's bow our heads and pray together.